Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, I'm here inter- interviewing Kenneth Height uh, about the Dracula Dossier, the new campaign uh, for Knight's Black Agent uh, from Pelgrim Press, uh, which is premised around the idea that Dracula is not only real, uh, somebody uh, needs to go kill him because he is out doing bad things. And not only that, he has been... And the reason there's dossiers is because intelligence agencies have been trying to recruit him for various ends, and that hasn't worked out for the best. Uh, hello, Kenneth. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Uh, so when I, I was reading up on the, I supported the Kickstarter, uh, by the way, and I've been looking through the PDF. I've been very impressed with it. Thanks and, so much for that. Uh, <laughs> like uh, Nice Black Agents in general, uh, aside from running campaign, I recently ran like a three-part game um, about using Greek mythology, uh, you know, uh, the Imbusa and some other things, uh, and the players were art thieves. So it was very interesting. I've always, I've always enjoyed the game. Um, and I definitely want to run Dracula Dossier at some point. Um, but when I was reading up on it, uh, one of the things I came across was a video you did for Pelgrim talking about the origins of this book and uh, where you talk about what inspired you. It's sort of an unusual source. Like it wasn't Dracula itself that inspired you to come up with this at first. It was a book on UFOs. Right. Yeah. It, there's a, and, and this sort of uh, takes us back to the palmy days of ufology before the internet. Uh, and there was uh, in, I think 1953, there was a book that came out by a guy named Morris Jessup called the case for the UFO. And it was sort of a, what we know about UFOs. And the guy was sort of a middling astronomer, I think sort of at a C-list uh, university. And he comes out with his book about UFOs and all the things that UFOs might be connected to. And long about 1956, somebody uh, who we now know as a guy named Carlos Allende sends a copy of the case for the UFO to the Office of Naval Intelligence, which is the place that he thought might be investigating UFOs. And this copy of the of the case for the UFO has been annotated in three different handwritings and in three different colors of ink by three figures that are all arguing about UFOs with each other and with the book. And they're saying this part is right. This part is wrong. You're wrong about whether that's wrong. You're wrong about whether he's wrong and uh, presenting in the course of it sort of their own versions of stuff about UFOs and the Philadelphia experiment and time and space and all manner of awesome stuff. So this shows up at the ONI and one officer of the ONI is so excited by this, uh, either because he's a UFO buff or because he thinks there might be something into it or because it's his job to track down weirdos who send things to the Navy, uh, that he has a company called Vero Manufacturing uh, type up on stencils a version of the case for the UFO with all the annotations so that he can share it with other like-minded officers, uh, either in the ONI or in ONI plus Blue Book or wherever else. And this became known as the Vero edition of the case for the UFO. And it became sort of a legend in the ufology committee that the government had done this special version of case for the UFO with these special annotations. And no one really knew at the time that it was just a crazy person wasting everyone's valuable time with their annotations. We all thought that it might be something real that the government had paid attention to. Again, this is before this is the seventies before we realized No, the government doesn't know what it's doing at any point, regardless of what it's looking into, UFOs or not. And so the uh, case for the UFO became this sort of legend uh, to those of us of a ufological bent. And now, of course, you can go on the Internet and look up case for the UFO Vero edition. And there it is. It's it's right there in in a facsimile edition that's been put up on the Web and you can read it. And it's fun. It's, it's, you know, sort of Nabokov amongst the saucer people, but it's not um, it doesn't blow the lid off of a darn thing. Uh, But I was so captivated by this notion of a document that has been annotated by three separate hands that when Simon Rogers asked me what I wanted to do as the big game for nice for nice black agents, the big campaign, I said, well, let's do uh, Robin's Armitage files as the sort of structure. It's a big anything can mean anything type book. But the doorway into it, instead of being a bunch of letters from the future, is something like the Vero edition, but instead of being the Vero edition of a UFO book, it's the Vero edition of Dracula. And so Dracula, there's a edition of Dracula that MI6 has annotated three different times. And rather than it being three guys simultaneously, I said, since we got a vampire, we're dealing with immortality. Let's make it three different generations of MI6 have annotated it. And instead of just being normal old Dracula, let's make it Stoker's secret first draft of Dracula with all the secrets because the reason MI6 is annotating it is 
Dracula was their idea. They tried to recruit Dracula in 1894 and bring him into the United Kingdom and become a, a super agent and, and help them fight the Russians. And that becomes the sort of through line for the whole century that MI6 is constantly trying to recruit Dracula as an asset, because if they just can, they can certainly stop Hitler in Romania, or they can certainly uh, track down a mole, uh, or they can certainly kill everyone in Al-Qaeda untraceably, because, hey, it's a vampire, he can kill everyone untraceably, and he's Dracula, he was fighting Muslims when he was alive, surely this makes sense. (laughs) And all of this sort of spilled out of me in about a half hour uh, talking to Simon, uh, walking around Clapham. And I'm not sure how much of it was in my head before Simon asked me. So what do you see as our big campaign for nice black agents and how much of it came out in the course of talking to Simon and sort of realizing what a great idea this would be and what an evocative thing it would be to have a copy of Dracula with three different handwritings worth of annotations in it, each from a different uh, uh, generation of MI6. And so as I became aware of, how much fun that would be. I slowly realized also how much work it was going to be to put it together. Because of course, if you've got three generations of annotations, that means several hundred annotations. If each of those annotations have, has to have a number of different meanings, then that's several hundred different clues that you have to leave. And every given, uh, person or location or object or, uh, organization that the annotation might point to a la Armitage files has to have, uh, multiple possible values that they might be an innocent. They might be working for Dracula or in uh, our universe, they might be working for operation Edom, the secret MI six group that has been trying to recruit Dracula for a century. And now <laughs> worst of all believes that it has. And so is therefore <laughs> out there covering up for all of Dracula's atrocities because in the course of murdering his way across Europe and possibly infiltrating the British government, he is also, as it happens, happy to chow down on terrorists now and again because MI6 sets him up and says, here's a whole room full of guys who are not going to have any crucifixes. I promise you that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. A mutually beneficial uh, relationship. Exactly. And uh, and you can sort of, and, and the great part of it is that you can almost see that it makes sense, right? Because, you know, Dracula is, I mean, you're eaten by a vampire versus blown apart by a drone strike. You're still dead. Uh, Right. You don't, and Dracula does collateral damage. Drone strikes do collateral damage. We're okay with the drone strikes. What's wrong with Dracula? And you have to actually believe that dealing with Dracula is a sin to realize that there is something wrong with it. And, of course, the other part of it is Dracula is very, very smart, and he's a conspirator, and he can suborn you and, te- and tempt you and hypnotize you away from serving the crown into serving Dracula and, and his own personal ends. So it's very much like the sort of deals that you know we have done as Western you know, societies where you go into Afghanistan and you say, well, we got to get the Russians out. Uh, we don't know any of these people. We don't speak any of their language. Hey, Pakistan, who's trustworthy here? And Pakistan says, well, uh, by an odd coincidence, it's our personal clients, the Taliban. You should arm them. And we're like, well, sounds good to us, Pakistan. Here's a million billion dollars worth of weapons. I'm sure nothing can possibly go wrong here. And then sure enough, it comes back to bite you in the butt. And that happens every time in the course of great power politics. And it happens every time in the course of espionage. And so therefore using Dracula as the sort of symbol of this, uh, uh, generationally bad idea decision-making is it's a potent metaphor. And so I think that that's another thing that makes it work really well, as opposed to just sort of, uh, pride and prejudice with zombiesing it, uh, tying espionage to Dracula is tying two things that actually do feel really uh, familiar and do really sort of mash, uh, match up or mash up well. That's true. Uh, and so one thing is you're also – it's not like Mask of Nyarlathotep or some other sort of campaign where like there's a beginning, middle, and end. And here's this adventure and here's this campaign, th- this adventure hub and so on and so forth. You've, you've worked on the Armitage file. Well, I mean you didn't work on but you're – Working off of it, the Armitage Files, the sort of uh, Robin Laws' uh, campaign model for Trail of Cthulhu, and um, where the idea is the the Game Master looks at all these ingredients um, 
and sort of assembles what he wants his version of the campaign to be. And uh, so that's kind of what – is that more or less the inspiration in terms of the, the structure of Dracula Dossier? Uh, did you just look at the armors? Oh, well, we'll just do that. And Well, yeah. I mean my, my career has been spent following along after Robin and doing the same thing not quite as well. I mean that's, that's, that's my business model, and I'll thank you to keep your hands <laughs> off of it. Um, yeah, I looked at the Armitage Files, and I saw a terrifically original, terrifically brilliant campaign structure, and of course I ripped it off. Who wouldn't? Um, I also ripped off Massive Nilothotep uh, when I designed the uh, – uh, the the story structure of Zelazny Quartet, uh, where we where we have the four stories that can be played in any order and then all build to a final capstone. Um, right. So yeah, I'm I'm all, very much aware of uh, the level of what I want to say originality uh, and and elegance of design that Robin put into the Armitage Files. So I I yes very much wanted to uh, coast on that wave, right? Drift behind Robin's uh, lead vehicle as much as I possibly could. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking at the, the, the book right now, uh, you have the various ingredients, the, the, the personalities involved, obviously Dracula, uh, and all the other major characters in the novel. And then, uh, you've also broken it down instead of also by location by year, uh, well by era, I guess Mm -hmm. I should say, uh, because there are options for running it with the original novel. Uh, cast of characters like the 1894 network uh, versus the 1940s, uh, 1977, 2011. Uh, and there, so care, so game masters could not only run it in just one era, you could run a multi-generational campaign where you start in 1894 uh, and then work your way to the present or end it in 1940 where, uh, and also thematically uh, there's everything from pulp, you know, we must kill vampire Hitler to a more subtle, uh, nuanced game, more like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, I, I imagine that's the inspiration for the 1977 Mole Hunt. Uh, is am I correct with that? Or is that, I mean, that's also history too. I mean, part of it is the history because when we were looking at doing three generations, uh, the three generations have to be World War II, the Cold War, and the War on Terror, and those have to be the three generations of MI6 because those are the three generations that exist. So once I've decided that those are going to be the three. I start looking at the history of Romania and the history of uh, what are going to be good options. Romania is on the cusp in 1940, so now I know that it's going to be 1940. Uh, the Cold War uh, going forward, if you even if, even if you just mathematically split the difference, you get the late 70s. Well, as it happened, Bram Stoker himself had drawn a connection between vampires and earthquakes in the original draft of Dracula. He cut out a part about a giant earthquake and volcano destroying Castle Dracula. He cut out a lot of little bits where Van Helsing says, oh, if only my friend Palmieri were here with his amazing seismograph, he could tell us what's going on. And on the one hand, that's Stoker saying, well, I think maybe that's over-egging the pudding. I'm not going to put in a volcano. I'm just going to take all this stuff out. But if you are treating it as though this is a secret document that is being redacted, they're taking out all the earthquakes because they're crucially important. And once you start looking for earthquakes, you see that there is a gigantic earthquake in Romania in 1977. And, hey, look at that, a gigantic earthquake in Romania in 2000 or in 1940 and another one in 2011. So, huh, look at that. My three periods have just magically aligned themselves with earthquakes. So I can uh, begin looking at that. So once I start looking at the 1970s, I know my Cold War story has to be the mole hunt story because, again, MI6 is desperately trying to find moles in the 60s, really, to uh, figure out who the the fifth man is after the um, Cambridge spy ring comes up. Uh, The CIA is doing the same thing with the Angleton mole hunt. So mole hunts are are that feel. Uh, Le Carre is definitely the, the king of Cold War spy fiction in a lot of respects, and Tinker Tailor is his masterpiece. So, yeah, if you get a chance to riff off Tinker Tailor... You take it. Um, <laughs> the fact that we knew we were looking for a mole hunt, the fact that it would be something different as opposed to the first two sorts of Draculas where they're trying to bring Dracula on side to, to get him to intervene. The second one, they're saying, did we make a mistake trying to bring Dracula to England because of he's hypnotic and immortal and can make other people immortal and hypnotic? Man, that says stay behind network to me a lot. And so <laughs> the mole hunt becomes an a great, again, an espionage allegory for hunting down vampiric influence. And in the same way that mole hunts often do more damage than the mole does, 
Uh, you can argue that letting uh, Edom off the leash does more damage to MI6 than letting Dracula have a mole in uh, MI6 might have. But it, it lets you play with a lot of the other sort of thematic, um, what Angleton called the wilderness of mirrors uh, aspect of spycraft. And again, wilderness of mirrors is a great metaphor for, for Dracula because the one thing you can't see uh, Dracula in is is the mirror. So there's there's a lot of, of, of great parallels going on and being able to play with that era of British intelligence uh, this is right after the, um, the, 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 the fifth man hunt. It's while there's still a lot of very bitter feelings because the guy, Peter Wright, the guy who wrote spy catcher is accused the, the deputy director of the SIS of being a Soviet mole. And there's a lot of back and forth about who is this guy, what's going on. So there's a lot of, of, of really thick historical thematic juice that we can uh, drain off and, and repurpose for our Dracula mole hunt as indeed Gareth did when he wrote the under the, uh, fourth generation, a campaign frame that lets you play the whole scope of the history. Uh, so, I mean, aside from the uh, the obviously the mechan the the setting material of having like all this rich <laughs> uh, amount of material, you know, there's a lot to, to pull from. Uh, you are also working within the framework of Knights Black Agents, and obviously you have uh, conspiramids uh, set up example conspiramids, um, and I'm just skimming the material, you know, talking about. Uh, early on, sort of providing a rundown of uh, Dracula's reactions to the player character's actions and that sort of back and forth. Um, and what I'm kind of worried, you know, looking at row six, you know, for example, row six destruction of what happens when there's there, the agents are very serious. Dracula sends everyone he has against them. Um, this this is, is interesting to me because, you know, when I was running uh, my campaigns, uh, there weren't as many um it got intense but it didn't get to this level of intensity that i saw so like in terms of playtesting the material it sounds like you know uh this is on page uh 20 just talking about oh he'll send the russian mafia he'll do all these other things. there's obviously in campaign stuff um in terms of the playtesting how did this work out like in terms of it sounds like dracula is so powerful that he's just going to be able to wipe out the player characters, uh, certainly in, in most of the examples, um, how, uh, obviously you play tested the campaign. Um, I don't know how, how, how lethal is Dracula? I mean, uh, obviously I don't know. Well, the goal is to make Dracula yeah. more lethal than the standard average vampire from nice black agents. When Gareth right. had the brilliant idea that said, we should really do a, a, a response pyramid for Dracula. Actually, that may have, might've been my idea. Gareth may have had the brilliant idea if we should do one for Edom. I knew he had a brilliant idea around there, but when we, whichever of us thought it up, uh, I very rapidly decided that Dracula's Vampyramid, his response should be a million times worse than the standard one because he's Dracula. He's got to be the boss. He's got to be the worst of all. And because again, he's a medieval warlord. He's not a modern day vampire. His response to all problems should be very game of Thrones, very, you know, chop off everybody's head. Uh, slaughter. I mean, I think he's got a row three response of massacre a bunch of innocents and leave the player's name in it um, as, as as sort of this is a standard go to. I just kill a whole ton of innocent people and make you live with it. Uh, that's that's more Dracula feel um, in terms of playtesting. It's pretty much impossible to have playtested the whole thing because the whole thing didn't even exist until at the, you know, right before we sent it off to print, uh, basically because we had the uh, Kickstarter adding, basically doubling the length of the manuscript. Uh, Gareth ran a play test, uh, that started off from the beginning and I ran some play tests of individual episodes where it was, I'm just going to put Dracula on stage and see if any player can survive Dracula. And, it turns out if the players run away fast enough, sure, they can survive Dracula. <laughs> so as far as I was concerned, that was an absolutely successful play test was the fact that they recognized that Dracula was a problem and they ran away. And <laughs> the whole goal of the game, I mean, if killing Dracula was easy, everyone would do it. So the right. goal of the game has to be get enough resources, get enough evidence, get enough overwhelming position and start cutting Dracula off from his strengths. Again, this is just what happens in the novel. They, Dracula begins with every advantage against the the hunters, and they cut back on his on his uh, uh, his food. They cut back on his uh, boxes of earth. They trace him to where they where he was hiding in London. They take away his property, and then they force him back into Romania. And then in Romania, they are on the 
literally the knife's edge of does he live or die? And it comes down to basically, you can imagine it coming down to one die roll, right? By, by the Quincy Morris character. Um, does he behead him or not? And there you go. If he, you know, if he hadn't spent his last four points such that the uh, Sagani could, could kill him, then Dracula might've lived. Uh, and, and so that's, that's how the novel comes down to is a really last minute fight. Um, and I think that if you had a play of a, a Dracula at the top of the pyramid, it was just like all the other vampires in Knights Black Agents, it wouldn't feel like Dracula. And that would be the worst thing of all would be to sort of call the game Dracula dossier and not deliver. Oh, okay. That, that, that makes sense. Um, certainly, um, one of the things I've had challenges I've had running Knights Black Agents is making vampires, uh, terrifying in combat in terms of like, no. And part of that is just for me, like trying to figure out when to make spins and when not to as a game master. And that's sort of a, uh, something you acquire over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, are there any tips you have for people who are like running Dracula dossier, like how to, you know, when there are, there is some advice in the book and in general, I've been pretty conservative about making spins, but like, I don't know what, what do you, what are you usually like? What, for example, in the play test, what did Dracula do to, to terrify players? Did he just show up, spin 20 points of aberrance in one round to, you know, take out three characters or, yeah. uh, or I don't know. I mean, the, the part of it is just the Dracula is, um, I made sure that he showed up where there were other people, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the player characters. And then there was, uh, in the, in one of the play tests, there were Croatian mercenaries that had been hired to guard something. And so the player characters have, looked at these Croatian mercenaries, they've talked to them, and I've said, yeah, you get a sense that these guys are the real deal. They were out there getting it done in the Balkan Wars. Uh, so fighting the Russian mob is their idea of a retirement. And so everyone's like, okay, I kind of get an idea of where these guys are coming from. And then Dracula shows up, and he just starts going through them like nine pens. And that sends a signal to a player who's paying attention that maybe they don't want to be standing in arm's length of Dracula, but it turns out he's moving really fast. And, you know, they had, uh, you know, their weapons and they unload them and, you know, they, they make wounds that don't matter, assuming they can hit him at all. And it's it's the same way that you know, tell someone that, you know, the wandering monster table has produced a red dragon today. Uh, <laughs> it's not super hard if you've been GMing for any great length of time to let players know this is a really boss monster. And if they don't have this assumption that every threat you present to them is a threat that, they, of course, they can handle uh, 50% of the time. Uh, it, it, again, a, a lifetime of running Call of Cthulhu has removed any concept of game balance from my GMing. Um, so the ability to present Dracula as a terrifying horror is, again, kind of instinctual for me. I'm, I'm kind of uh, right. not sure how you wouldn't present him. I, well, obviously, Buffy versus I Dracula. Think, I think it was probably, but... for me, it was my personal thing about the vampires I designed in terms of what they could do and what they couldn't do. Um and uh, pers- I guess it's sort of me as a GM. I'm personally sort of kind of reluctant to kill players in the middle, uh, the beginning of a game session because I don't want to necessarily have them sit out the rest of the session until I can find an opportunity to introduce a new character. Um, so I guess, uh, and also, yeah, I don't know. The, uh, the, I guess it's more on me and um, making sp- making vampires that are more offensive. Uh, Certainly, with some of the nice black agent mechanics, some of them are you know the the making large spins in one round. It feels like I can yes, I can guarantee a character dead, but I don't know. Um, so I guess that's more on me. Well, there's some else. there are some vampires that you don't want to do that for the vampires that if they've got say an aberrance of twelve, they may not want to spend four yeah. on one hit. Dracula's got an aberrance of I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it's like fifty. Yeah, he he can spend what Dracula wants to spend, right? He's that's true. not hurting for certain. Um, <laughs> and when I when I ran my nice black agents alpha playtest, uh, the first thing that I did was I had a bunch of expendable pregens that were Serbian mobsters, and they gave them all to the players. And I said, "You are Serbian mobsters, and you've heard that there's some other gang uh, who's moved in on your human trafficking, and that their headquarters is this palazzo in Venice. So go get them." And they take their Serbian mobsters, who are fairly boss, not super boss, but pretty boss, nice black agents characters. And they walk into the palazzo, and I just rip them to pieces with one vampire. And their actual player characters see this, the surveillance footage of that. <laughs> and that lets the players have the visceral sense that no fighting a vampire is a serious move, and you can absolutely die. It gives them that information and the player characters can have that information in game because they see the surveillance feed of these Serbian mobsters being ripped to pieces by literally nothing. 
and say, well, that's, that's not good at all. And <laughs> I think that that, that really moves to reinforce the seriousness of it. But one of the great things about nice black agents, he said as the creator is that you can have <laughs> vampires that are only just a tiny bit more powerful than people, or that are only about as powerful as two people. Um, the feral vampires, for example, are fairly horrible, but a group of nice black agents players should be able to take one feral vampire down and not even have anyone die necessarily, unless there's just a series of really bad roles by somebody that, you know, there's maybe a couple of players will be crippled, but you know, that, that happens in the best families. Uh, all right. That, that's great advice. Uh, so when you, when a player, when a GM is looking at the Dracula dossier and kind of, there's several hundred pages of material. It's over, it's three, over 360 pages. Yeah. The core, or less. the core book is counting index, uh, 368 pages long. Yeah. Uh, there's quite or a bit of material, brother, I should say. Uh, and you, ha- you have an introduction and everything like that, but like, uh, what kind have you figured out some advice for people who are tr- trying to absorb all of this material at once? Plus there's also the novel, yeah, uh, which is the central handout. Like you give the novel to the players, the annotated novel and like ask them, what do you want to look up first? Uh, so what what kind of advice would you give to people? Certainly now that you've gotten some feedback from people since the, it is, the PDF has been out for a while mm-hmm. now. So um, I think that with the novel, the people look at that 400 page monstrosity of a novel and they think, oh, my God, I have to read all that. First of all, you already read three quarters of that or 80 percent of that because it's Dracula, dude. You know how that novel goes. Um, don't sweat it. Uh, just read the footnotes. They're in different colors of ink and they're in the margins and they look different from novel. And that's why is so that you can read those. And that's not actually, that's maybe 10,000 words. That's almost nothing. Um, and as you read those footnotes, then you can go back into the novel and find out how they relate to the novel if you want to. But the footnotes are the clues. The novel is the excuse for us to give you the footnotes. So that's, you know, the way to get the novel in a more digestible chunk. Then in the, in the director's handbook, I would say the director can look at the how to use this book, which is, you know, that opening 20 pages. Um, maybe look at the original 1894 network and the opposition forces to get an idea of what kind of bad guys they want in and sort of the origin story. But I wouldn't even say that that's necessary. And then skip down to uh, the scenario spines section that guarded that gives you an idea of how to run individual scenarios based on the stuff from the novel and based on the middle of the book. And then maybe look at uh, the campaign frames uh, to see if there's a specific kind of a game you want to run or look at the capstones to see if there's a direction you want to point stuff to. But I think that, I mean, the middle of the book uh, from, you know, say the, the people nodes, objects, locations, etc. that's all clues. And that's up to you to give out or not give out. You're in control of that. And the player characters are in control of deciding what clues they want you to give out. So all of you working together can build a satisfying story and you don't have to use all 368 pages of the book. You, the the reason it's 368 pages is specifically so you don't have to use all 368 pages of the book. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, that makes it a little more, uh, digestible, I think for, for some people, uh, because again, yeah, a lot of people will look at a massive book and be like, Oh, uh, when am I ever going to use this? I mean, uh, all of it so, is yeah. gold. So you should certainly yeah. read all of it for your own joy. But <laughs> I, I have been skimming around just reading random pages. It's been very, uh, entertaining, but in terms uh, of running it, um, you know, the reason it's that big is so that you don't actually have to use all of that. Right. Uh, one thing, yeah, you mentioned campaign frames and, uh, for those who aren't aware, those are basically example campaigns. Like here is a way you could structure your campaign. Yeah. Uh, and the, the three are, you have the abhorrent truth. They saved Hitler's blood and onto the fourth generation. What, what are these three frames? Um, the three frames are, uh, the abhorrent truth is adding the Cthulhu mythos in, um, because we're not going to have a book that, uh, I did without the Cthulhu mythos in it. And they're both, you know, great horror masterpieces. So why not uh, the taste that uh, blends together? <laughs> so the abhorrent truth is if you are already running Trail of Cthulhu or you're a big Mythos fan or maybe you can't get your players to buy into Dracula, but you want to still use this material. This is how to sort of slide it in. Or if conversely, everyone's says, ah, Dracula, Schmacula, this is how to sort of beef him up even more with cosmic horror. So that's what the abhorrent truth is. It's not uh, so much a 
separate way to run it as it is separate things to include and ways to look at the material. Then um, they saved Hitler's brain or they saved Hitler's blood is the airport thriller version. It has mechanical rules to sort of turn it up to 11, make it super pulpy. Uh, it has a big Fourth Reich vampire conspiracy that's in Antarctica and South America and all kinds of places for you to introduce as yet another actor in your game. Uh, it doesn't make it less complex by any stretch of the imagination, but it does make it sort of uh, louder and maybe that's easier for people to grasp. And so that gives you a different storyline that you can run it along if you're worried that the Victorian Gothic is too abstruse and you're worried that the Tinker Tailor is not going to be what uh, people get because they didn't, they couldn't even stay awake through the movies. So God forbid they should watch the whole miniseries or even read the novel, but everyone loves to stomp Nazis. So this is the sort of, you know, one louder, very clear uh, uh, thriller version, airport uh, thriller version of the game. And then onto the fourth generation is the one that Simon insisted that we have, where you can literally start playing in 1894 with the original cast of Dracula and then play out the 1940 uh, SOE incursion into Romania to recruit Dracula in 1940. You can play out the mole hunt in 1977, and then you can play out uh, your current characters in the war on terror uh, in the modern day, uh, receiving the, the Dracula dossier leak. And that then lets you play the whole thing out over a gigantically um, a campaign of gigantic scope, if that is what you want to do. But what it also does in sort of the um, in in the back door is it presents you with a uh, what do I want to say a default timeline or a default storyline so that uh, in the in the in the game the mole hunt can have gone any number of different ways the attempt to awaken Dracula in 1940 can have gone any number of different ways the war on terror can be going any number of different ways Dracula can have gone any number of different ways the 1894 op I mean. But this gives us, if you don't change anything else, this is what's true. This sort of uh, background timeline. And I think a lot of maybe newer GMs or GMs who are not quite as eager to play Ducks and Drakes with the last century and a half of history can look at that and say, oh, thank God someone has made all these decisions. I can just focus on 2011 or even I can just focus on 1977 if I want. And it doesn't um, and it, it, it doesn't require them to make a bunch of decisions. And I think that that's the other sort of strong point of having under the fourth generation in there. Although if you run this Dracula dossier campaign starting in 1894 and ending up in the present day, I salute you, sir or ma'am. You are, you are the king of GMs. <laughs> you can, you can just, uh, you, you can smack the temple of elemental, elemental evil out of the path. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it has to tug its forelock to you. That's what I say. Interesting. Uh, I, I I like it. Uh, have you gotten any reports back of people uh, playing it? Like, yeah. have you heard of any new uh, versions or themes or campaign frames? There is a uh, there is a uh, I don't say super active, but there's a pretty active Dracula dossier GMs group on Google Plus, and there's a Dracula dossier group on um, Facebook, and we have people who are posting there who are saying this is what I'm running. These are the opportunities that I've made. Uh, there's someone who's player. Uh, characters have begun in 1894 with a bunch of other characters so that their her Dracula is even more of a cover-up than my Dracula is um, <laughs> so that, uh, that they are already going off the off the beam and I can't wait to see what happens by the time they get to 1940 um, and then other people are saying nope we're starting it off with the the Harker incursion which was the the the, the true uh, the, the the sort of our free RPG day uh, scenario intro which is one of the it, it literally is someone falls onto a car holding the Dracula dossier. You pick it up off their dead body and go. And it, it, this is the, why you were standing underneath that car adventure. Um, and the uh, and they're just starting it out and they're having a great time. And they're saying, my characters are doing this and my characters are doing this. And I'm seeing people posting and saying, I really like the the one line you put in there about how Van Helsing went to China. And so I'm building my whole campaign around that. And I was saying, you realize I'm just riffing on Dracula and the seven golden vampires, right? You realize that was what that was, but you know, whatever they've gone to China, they're having a huge fun. And a lot of it also is because we were lucky enough to get James Palmer to write for us. And he lives in Beijing. He's a, 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 a Chinese historian for God's sake. So it's like, yeah, he wants to write about Hong Kong. You put Hong Kong on the book. 
Uh, don't, yeah. don't ask a lot of stupid questions. And so, um, and again, we're not the only people to put China in. If you've seen uh, pages from a virgin's diary, the Dracula ballet movie, uh, they've uh, cast a Chinese actor to be Dracula in it. And that emphasizes that sort of sense of xenophobia and Eastern threat that uh, Bram Stoker is working with. But nowadays we don't say, Oh my God, they're from Romania. That how terrifying uh, anymore. Um, they still do it in Britain for some reason, but you know, the, the, uh, the Polish plumber is going to come and take our jobs, but the presenting a Chinese Dracula gives us that same sense of, Oh, he's from a simultaneously older civilization that has been around since the, you know, the, the, the early times. And also he's going to eat our lunch, uh, fear that, that Stoker's, uh, readers had. So I think that there's a, there, there's a real fun in, in playing with those China parallels as well. And of course, James Palmer was terrific and gave us an opportunity to, hit that China level hard, but it's not what I would have immediately bet people would jump on. But you know, that's why you fill a whole book full of, of, of story hooks. I, I shouldn't be surprised if people pick any given hook because they're all meant to be hooky. That's, <laughs> that's why we put them in there. The nature of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you actually have a lot of location. I mean, uh, locations in the book. I mean, you basically, you do have a justification for pretty much anywhere. The British empire ever really took over at some point because, Including you know, Including places the British empire only sort of occasionally, had interest right. in like Argentina. Yeah. Uh, there's not only Argentina, there's Iceland, mm-hmm. uh, Israel, well, Israel kind of makes sense. Uh, there, especially with the world war two angle. Uh, the, yeah, Netherlands, Slovakia, uh, well, and the United States, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, um, very, very interesting. Uh, did, uh, you mentioned James Palmer worked on it. Who else worked on, uh, Dracula dossier and to help round it out? Oh my goodness. We had such a all star cast. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to just sit here and read off everybody, but I will, right, for right. example, say we had Shoshana Kessick, who is, um, you know, one of the sort of, uh, great LARP stars of the, of the Eastern seaboard, very into the sort of the indie story game scene. She was nice enough to come in and write stuff for us. Sean Merwin, who's done stuff for Wizards of the Coast, did stuff for us. Nathan Pauletta, great indie game designer from Chicago, personal friend of mine, great human being. Wes Schneider who is in charge of monsters basically for Pathfinder. I don't know if you've seen those great Pathfinder bestiaries that are so beautiful oh, yeah. and sexy. Well, Wes Schneider is the guy who puts those together. So I said, Hey, Wes Schneider, wouldn't it be great if you wrote a bunch of monsters for my book? And sure enough, he did. And of course they were terrific. Um, the, uh, the gnome stew guys, uh, uh Walt Suchanowski and, uh, Phil Vecchione, um, uh, uh, Chris Snezak, uh, Heather Albano, uh, who's a uh, sort of a rising star of of uh, adventure design? Elsa Henry, who's done um, some stuff for Fate, so she's sort of on more the 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 hip side of things. Marissa Kelly, similarly, an uh, uh, apocalypse world designer. So we sort of reached out to a reached out. I've just said reached out like it was a thing. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm very sleepy. Um, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I just came back from Portland. So that, I'll, I'm going to blame Portland for that. Oh, the Lovecraft film. Festival, yeah, we, right? we asked a bunch of people uh, sort of from across the, per, the 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 spectrum to write for us. And some of them had time and some of them didn't. But I think the people we, we did get did a great job. And, of course, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, who was my co-author, co-designer, cohort, um, just yeoman work, just a superb amount of, of work on that. And he had the great ability uh, to be given – a thing by me and then I could ignore him and he would turn in something magnificent and it would be magnificent in the way that I would have done it if I'd had the time except um, with Gareth's original thoughts and ideas in it. So it looked like a Ken Height <laughs> contribution and it fits seamlessly into what I'd already designed, but it was just differently original and clever. And Gareth, uh, you know, I've, I've cleverly uh, been president of the creation of a younger, faster, uh, uh, me, which I'm not sure I should have done, but he did such a great job with this book. And he's the, as far as I'm concerned, the indispensable, uh, writer on the project. Uh, well, Brom Stoker. Okay, fine. But also Gareth. <laughs> so it's the Irish that, that really came in and saved this part, this product and made it happen. Uh, and so if you're a fan of Gareth's work on, you know, one ring, or if you're a fan of his work on laundry files, this is some of his best stuff ever. And he's just done such a terrific job on it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean the whole thing, uh, what, what in particular, uh, what, what do you think was his best contribution to it or what the idea like, Oh, I wish I thought of that. Well, I'll tell you the thing that, um, very, very early on when I realized that I was in good hands, uh, Gareth comes to me and he says, Hey Ken, we've got all these earthquakes and whatnot, and we're sort of 
baked into the cake that we're going to have Dracula the way that Stoker wrote about him. But what if we came up with an idea where Dracula is caused by earthquakes and we have a sort of a sciencey Dracula that is uh, born from earthquakes somehow? And I said, all right, you go away and you give me a science Dracula. And he comes back with the Dracula that we call the telluric vampires, where they're an infected uh, uh, people are infected by these extremophile bacteria that live in volcanic vents and they bubble up during earthquakes and they infect you. And so, so he did this great job of this. And so he's saying, all right, they're telluric. They draw energy from the earth, blah, blah, blah. What can kill them? Moon rocks can kill them. If you hit them with an extraterrestrial thing, it will hurt them. So meteoric iron will hurt them and moon rocks will hurt them. And he has a little sidebar. Here are all the moon, all the known moon rocks in Romania. And I looked at that <laughs> sidebar and I said, that is a Ken Heights sidebar. If I didn't know I didn't write that, I would swear I had written that. And of course it was great and it was evocative. And sure enough, one batch of the moon rocks has been stolen and is missing because that's <laughs> what the Lord does when you ask him for secret history. Um, and, and so he did that. There was another one where uh, he was doing the Vanderpool garlic. Uh, if you uh, remember in the novel and there's no reason you should uh, Van Helsing writes away to his friend Vanderpool in, uh, in Harlem in uh, the Netherlands for special garlic. And so we're like, what's so special about Vanderpool's garlic? You go do that, Gareth. And so Gareth comes back with this awesome stuff about the garlic being grown in uh, vats over these humming power batteries and whatnot. And then off the top of his head, he says, interestingly enough, garlic smuggling is a big thing because of EU customs duties and Chinese gangs have been involved in garlic smuggling. So there's garlic wars down on the docks at these, at these locations in Europe over the past few years. And again... <laughs> That's a Ken Height detail. That's something that I would have put in, but I didn't put it in. Guarded it. But if I'd written up Vanderpool garlic, I guarantee you I would not have included garlic smuggling wars done on the docks. So it's a Ken Height detail I never would have thought of. And that, when I saw that Gareth not only could do that, but did do that routinely, whenever you gave him anything to do, it just made this project so much better and so much easier to be able to say, hey, Gar, give me the... The uh, guy from the DIFC who tasks satellites. Hey, Gar, give me this. Give me that. Give me this other thing. And knowing that whatever came in would be bulletproof and wonderful and open up in so many fun and exciting ways. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, the Telluric vampires uh, were one of the first things I noticed. I'm like, holy crap, this is uh, fascinating. I mean, like the idea. Yeah. An alternate explanation, because that's one of the things I really like about Night's Black Agents is that you can really spin things. Uh, in a way that the players won't expect. I mean, when I ran the campaign, for the first, I based it on certain things from the Cthulhu Mythos, uh, but I sort of didn't reveal that until nine sessions into the campaign, where my player's like, you son of a bitch, mm -hmm. why didn't you tell us? Uh, and then I threw in time travel and a bunch of other stuff. And I think something like, yeah, vampires powered by volcanic, volcanic vent uh, bacteria uh, it is certainly going to throw them uh, for a loop. Um, so this is coming. This has already been out in PDF, right? Uh, and you can, but it's coming out in print. Yeah, uh, this month. Yeah, it's coming out in print. Uh, Halloween is our target date for game stores all across this great land to have it. And if you pre-order it from a game store that is part of the Bits and Mortar program, or if you pre-order it from Pelgrane Press, you can have those PDFs that you speak of right now. Um, the PDF <laughs> will come first, and then the hard copy will come. Uh, with the hard copies, as they do, if you did not back uh, the Dracula dossier in Kickstarter. If you did back it in Kickstarter, you probably already have your hardback by the time you hear this. But if not, uh, you maybe you live in Iceland or Argentina or one of those places that only Dracula can get to. Um, but certainly uh, by Halloween, it should be in game stores uh, everywhere, and you should be able to go and buy it at will. And of course, whenever you buy any game from the Pelgrane website, the PDF is free. Uh, were there you? I, I'm looking at the Kickstarter again. Uh, aside from the book, uh, well, there's the Dracula dossier, and then of course Dracula Unredacted, uh, as the two main print books. You also there's uh, what other things are there uh, for people to buy? I notice like extra Hawkins or Bound Adventures. Uh, are there any other supplements for this? Uh, the Hawkins papers are a bunch of crazily good handouts, um, and I'm not entirely sure if those will ever be sold in stores because. It's really difficult to put those together, but they'll be available right. in PDF, obviously. 
Um, and we did want to give people who backed the, the Kickstarter something that only they got that nobody else got. And if you didn't back the Kickstarter, that's what you get for ignoring my social media feed, you <laughs> jerks. Um, but uh, you, you can get them in PDF, certainly, and they are crazily gorgeous uh, handouts. Uh, done by Dean Engelhart um, uh, with just a psychotic attention to detail. Uh, there's a book of adventures called The Edom Files that goes back to 1877 and runs different adventures from the history of Edom. So there's an 1877 adventure. I wrote a 19, uh, an adventure set in occupied 1948 Vienna. There, and so going forward all the way down to the beginnings of the War on Terror, there's a number of adventures in the history of Edom that you can either run as standalones, you can run them as flashbacks, or you can slot them into your uh, immense under the fourth generation adventure. And then there's a, a campaign rather. And then there's also the Edom field manual, which is just what it sounds like. The first third of it is the actual briefing documents that you get when you join Edom as one of the, you know, uh, ratings whose job it is to go out and corral vampires and keep Dracula happy and do all your little tasks. <laughs> uh, and then the middle part is, if you, the player characters, have decided that the Edom sounds like the good guys to you because they're using vampires to kill terrorists and everyone hates terrorists, um, then you can run Edom as a campaign. And this is the background for you, the players, to look at for that. And then the final part of it is the GM's background, the director's background for running that campaign and using that. So the Edom field manual is the my players would like to play Edom or I think it would be fun to have my players begin as Edom and then realize later on that they are perhaps not doing the best that they possibly could. Uh, from a moral or even practical standpoint um, <laughs> and, and uh, have that be the arc of my campaign. I think that would be more right. fun. Uh, now you'll be able to do that. And again, Gard did just a magnificent job of sort of doing the voice of stodgy British Navy and intelligence bureaucracy uh, in the, in the, um, in the briefing document. And then did a great job of imaginatively putting himself in the, uh, minds of the players and then of the GM. And so I came along and I wrote just enough to be able to get my name on the cover and, uh, and help him out. I, I, I came up with like the, the Edom, uh, code flash for vampire that you use when you're doing the silent tactical gestures, you know, uh, stop, uh, don't make any noise. Uh, that's a vampire, um, that kind right. of thing. And then some of the, the trade crafty elements of it, I, I put in there, but by and large, it's, it's 90% Gar and 10% Ken, um, and it's all percent, uh, pretty fricking great. So that's the other big one that you get. Then also we have as a free download for, uh, backers. And I think we're going to charge a nominal sum. There is a, uh, drama system, uh, campaign, uh, series pitch for operation Edom called prevenient Calix. There's an esoterrorists campaign frame where you run the Dracula dossiers and esoterrorists game. And at some point, uh, when he is out from under Time Watch, Kevin Culp will write us a, a Time Watch Edom Files uh, thing. And that, and those are little tiny things, but they're, you know, sort of bringing the Edomverse out uh, into the world. Maybe at some point I will draft Will Hindmarch to help me write another one of our beloved uh, Fiasco playsets. And we'll do a Fiasco playset where you're uh, trying to corral a vampire and also stop a terrorist attack. I think that would be a great Fiasco, in fact. Uh, that would be a perfect capstone for the uh, the game, actually. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. Uh, so those are all the things that are coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, as, oh, wow. And, and many of them are out already, obviously. The right. um, uh, the Prevenient Calyx is out. as uh, um, The Dracula's dossier is what Robin called his Esoterrorists one. That's out now. Cool. Um, obviously, the two core books are out, and Edom Files and Edom Field Manual are both in proof, I believe, at the moment. And so... So um, by the time uh, people hear this, they are out of proof, God willing, and at the printer. <laughs> and right. whether they will be out, I don't think they're going to make Halloween uh, because they've been later than right. the core books. But they'll, they'll, you know, you can buy them for people for Christmas by the end of the year. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, hopefully. Uh, well, great. Um, and so, yeah, this I noticed you mentioned actually on Facebook today. This has been basically your life for the last two years, more or less, yeah. has been working on the Dracula dossier. Uh, and right, you're already going back into the work with the fall of Delta green, uh, which we've, we've previously talked about on the unspeakable podcast. So you can listen to that there. Uh, but, uh, a, a, do you have any, anything you're working on after that? Or is that, that's pretty much filled up your, uh, your schedule up to the horizon. My Pelgrane dance card is fairly full right now. Um, with fall of Delta green, obviously the ongoing projects that I'm working on are, uh, the Ken writes about stuff PDFs 
that come out. Right. Um, there's a number of very exciting, fun little things that I do uh, once a month. It's about 11 pages. You can go and order it uh, as a individual singles. You can pick up uh, the singles that you want either from the Pograin site or from drive through or wherever you buy your your uh, or Warehouse 23, wherever you buy your PDFs. Or you can buy a subscription from Pograin and, and get a substantial savings on the cost of them. About every other one of those is something called a hideous creature, where I look at a mythos creature from all kinds of different angles. Um, but there's also individual campaign frames. There's expansions of gumshoe rules, looks at various exciting cities to set adventures in. Whatever I happen to be thinking about is what turns into uh, uh, Ken writes about stuff. And I should have mentioned also under the con- under the list of things that are happening uh, for the Kickstarter, of course, Thrill of Dracula, my book about all the various ways Dracula has been portrayed, mostly in film, but at least once in radio, once in television, and um, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of look about how he was portrayed before he was Dracula, back when he was just boring old Vlad the Impaler, and the kinds of horror stories people wrote about Vlad Tepes, as opposed to the horror stories that they wrote about Count Dracula. But the uh, thrill of Dracula is sort of looking at that whole myth and how it has been changed in the last uh, hundred years, or maybe in the last five hundred years, and then how that gives you the GM permission to change it up again for your stories, so that right. you don't have to feel imprisoned by me or Bram Stoker or Bella Lugosi or anybody. You can make your own Dracula and make it as awesome as you want, and tune it for your own player characters, and not listen to my snotty opinions. <laughs> Uh, well, I certainly Hollywood hasn't felt that restriction. I mean, he's basically a superhero with that last film yes, yes. that came out. Uh, and uh, recently I just saw uh, the cover to a novel called Dracula's Gold, which was part of a series. Uh, I can't even remember what it was made, but it inspired me to create a one-shot for uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, uh, which is the old-school Renaissance game where you, at level zero, you can each player controls a squad of like four peasants and you throw them in a dungeon whoever survives gets to be a level one character and uh so i came with a scenario called steel dracula's gold where you're the peasant lynch mob with the pitchforks and the torches and you go to his castle at dawn and you try and loot it because you don't want to be a peasant anymore but you think if you stake dracula early his castle will crumble and thus you want to loot as much as you can before you get to him and kill him. But if you wait too long, it'll be nine. He'll wake up and kill all of you. And uh, so that's, I mean, that's my my sort of recent uh, interpretation of the Dracula mythos. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that he's become so everything from comedy to pure terror uh, to sex symbol. Um, it's an enduring myth uh, during, well, not a myth, but an enduring story for a reason. So, I, And I think uh, it, it is an enduring myth. I mean, it, myths are stories. Are, are answers to questions that we can't ask clearly. Um, and so Dracula is an answer to the question of uh, who's out there? Are people from other countries really interested in being nice to me? That kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, Dracula is an answer. It, he may be a, a xenophobic answer or a scary answer or a wrong answer, but he's a myth. He's never going away. And uh, I don't think he should go away because it turns out, He's also uh, the star of a terrific novel and a number of pretty good movies. That's true. Uh, all right. So uh, for those of you looking for a Halloween game, uh, there's plenty with the Dracula dossier. You can uh, – and certainly that free adventure, the uh, the um, Hawkins encounter, was it? The, the, Hawken, uh, uh, the, the Hawkins incursion or the Harker incursion. incursion. Yes. Harker incursion. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's available separately as a PDF. So you could you, you ru- hit the ground running with that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's out now. We'll have links up on the show notes. So, uh, thanks a lot, Kenneth. I know it's late, uh, but this has been Ross Payton for Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks a lot. All right.